You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, folks. So today we're talking to Sarah Taub. Sarah teaches relationship and community skills and helps groups deepen their intimacy. She co-founded the first co-housing community in Washington, D.C., and now lives with her intimate network of lovers and co-creators at Chrysalis, a small urban intentional community in the D.C. area. She organizes with the Center for a New Culture since 2004, uh, which puts on multi-day camps and other events that create a culture based on awareness, compassion, and freedom rather than on fear and judgment. The topic of today's conversation is community, and we're going to specifically be talking about community. If you're kinky or you're poly, you know, what is the importance of community? How can you find your community? How can you go about creating a community if maybe you live in an area where there isn't already a community established? Um, We're also going to talk quite a bit about intentional communities. Uh, This is a topic that I think is incredibly interesting. I think that there is a lot of potential in, you know, creating intentional communities of like-minded people, whether it's kinky or poly or a combination of the two. So we're actually going to talk quite a bit about, you know, what an intentional community is, what it looks like, how you can find an intentional community, if that's something you're interested in, and even some of the first steps to take if you were, you know, perhaps like me, maybe interested in starting your own intentional poly community of like-minded folks and how you would go about that. So all in all, I think it's a good conversation. And without further ado, here's Sarah Taub. You just want to start off by talking a little bit and just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I am an event organizer and a group facilitator and relationships coach and so on with a a group called Center for a New Culture. It's a little nonprofit that uh, supports creating a culture based on love and freedom as opposed to fear and judgment. And I get to spend time with people, teaching them skills, supporting them to do their relationships better. And one of my very favorite things is working with conflicts and big issues that come up. And I love helping people see how to hold space for each other and to understand each other more deeply. And I'm always amazed by what happens when people are able to really listen to each other and open their hearts to each other. It's always more miraculous and exciting than anything I could have imagined. I know we're going to be talking a little bit today about community. That's that's kind of the focus of this discussion. Um, and so I'm curious as to what got you, you know, clearly you've been doing a lot of work around community and that kind of stuff and with the Center for New Culture. And I'm curious as to what is it that got you interested in that? Wow, that goes back a long, long ways. I think... I think the very earliest thing that got me interested was my brothers are like 10 or 12 years older than me, and they were in the folk music revival in the 70s. And and so 
my parents would take me to visit them at folk festivals and there'd be people dancing and, you know, hanging out with each other and having an amazing time. I'm like, wow, that looks really good to me. I want more of that. So that's what community meant to me. Okay. So how did that kind of translate to your interest in community, uh, kind of, you know, more in the alternative lifestyle space? Wow. Well, I, I want to put another data point in there, which is when I was in college, I took a class called Nonviolence and Social Change, and it was student run. So we all took turns leading leading the, the class sessions. And that's where I learned how to, um, we had to learn the best, the basics of facilitating and concepts of like bringing out the people with quiet voices and, you know, including participation from everyone. And that really helped me see what it's like to be supported by peers and really feel held in community. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. I want more of that. And then I guess I knew a lot of people who were interested in living together and doing exciting things, changing the world full time. So that really led to my interest in community. It's like, I don't want to just be doing my work when I'm at school or at the workplace or whatever. I want my whole life to feel unified. So I want to be with people who want to create the same kind of world I want to create. And so that naturally led to an in interest in community and it also supported my interest in alternative relationship structures. I think I was interested in polyamory starting from, I don't know, early teens also before the word existed. So those things were kind of mutually supporting for me. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to me. So we're, we're touching on some stuff that I actually find super interesting. It's one of the things that I think we've talked about on here a little bit before is kind of how the sense of community, kind of how, how the world has, has shrunk. We've kind of grown farther apart from people at the same times. I mean, Cassie and I have lived in neighborhoods where like we really don't know our neighbors. Like where we live now is a great example. Like we literally do not know our neighbors. Like there was a, a nicer older lady who lived next door who we saw occasionally. She passed away and like we don't know any of our neighbors at all. And I mean, we live on a street yeah. and we've had, you know, and it's, it's, you know, there's more and more people that I talk to because you know, a lot of times the people that we value or we're friends with, or we have relationships with aren't actually physically close to us. And the people who are physically close to us, we don't interact with that much. Yeah. So I felt like, what if I could have the people that I love and the people that I'm creating with and the culture we're trying to create all happening together at the same place at the same time? I get that at events when I go to an event. What if I don't have to go home from that? What if that could be my everyday reality? When you put it that way, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> well, you know, that's sort of the draw. And then when you start to make that kind of situation happen, you realize that there are some pitfalls. This was the initial impetus, and then the rest of it leads right into the kind of work I do. Because, you know, there's this actual honeymoon effect, not just in a relationship. I guess in the polyamory world, we call it new relationship energy, where everybody's really excited about everybody. And that happens in communities also, you know, you, you're starting to get together, it's exciting, you love each other, everything's great, and then suddenly, boom, someone gets upset, and then the whole thing kind of falls apart. So what do you do then? <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate to that with being in the kink community. And it's like you you start having these groups form and things like that, and it's awesome until it's not, <laughs> until something goes wrong. But I kind of want to back up a little bit because 
on the podcast, we talk a lot about community, right? We talk about finding your own kind and blending with other folks who have like minds and things like that. But I think for a lot of folks, they don't actually know what it is to be part of a community. For a lot of folks, it's, well, I hear this word and this term thrown around, but really what is community? Well, I'll take a stab at that if you like. So the word is used in lots of different ways. And I think the most basic thing that those all share is a group of people who want to be connected with each other in some way. They want to be connected in some way or they share a common way of looking at things. There are communities of people that don't live together. There are communities of people who do live together. My own interest is in creating communities of people who either live together or nearby or close enough that they meet face-to-face pretty frequently because I feel that that meets a basic human need to see and be seen, to touch and be touched, to have this in-person, face-to-face connection. Yeah, I actually want to talk about that quite a bit more and, and about the kind of minutiae of setting that up and, and how that's played out for you and, and some of the stuff you run into because I actually have a real interest in setting up an intentional community at some point. This is something that I've talked about with Cassie and Amanda quite a bit. I guess before we get to that, I'm curious just, you know, because the word community is something we hear thrown around a lot. And I'm curious as to why is it that you think community is important? Like what's so important about having that, that we should, you know, take steps to you know, do intentional communities or make sure that we're hanging out with other people of our kind or things like that? Well, people are different, but for me and for many, many folks I know, there's this really deep desire to see and be seen, to know and be known that if I'm just sort of existing in the world by myself, I don't feel complete. I want to be able to express and be heard. I want to get the world of another person. I want to kind of go deep into understanding things from their point of view because it enriches me. To me, that's that's part of the draw of community. And then there's also the draw of mutual support, which is if a person is living all on their own and they get sick, it's really hard to handle daily life in this world. But if there's a collective or a group of people or an extended family, you know, someone might come by with chicken soup or, you know, bring you to the doctor or, you know, all that kind of thing. So there's, there's some very practical draw to community. And then finally, sometimes people are looking to create a way of being that's different from the mainstream or has a different goal or aspiration. And being with like-minded people is so helpful to create and hold that way of being. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, most religions have a weekly gathering, quote, going to church on Sunday or whatever it is for that religious tradition so that people can gather and kind of relax into that energy, that way of being, that vibration being held by a larger group than just them. Well, and it's funny because, you know, as somebody who comes from a religious family, when you move from being religious to not being religious, one of the one of the roles that religion does fill very well, most religions anyways, is providing a community. I mean, it provides, you know, you have people who do activities together, who support each other, um, like you said, who see each other on a regular basis. And that is that is one of those interesting things that when you a lot of times when you stop being religious you don't really have a good most people don't find a good replacement for that I yeah, don't think absolutely and the thing is most of the religions that we're exposed to create that kind of uniformity of purpose by having some kind of dogma that everyone's supposed to believe that does create in some ways a strong umbrella 
However, if you don't want to believe the same things or that, you know, it just, if it doesn't work for you to be a, a believer in the faith in that way, then that kind of community doesn't work. And then communities that aren't based around dogma in some ways are a lot harder to hold together, which comes back to why I'm so interested in teaching skills for community and helping people be, let's say, dampeners of reactivity rather than amplifiers of reactivity in their community. Yeah. And I think it's interesting when you kind of move, you know, you're talking about like a, a shared set of, of beliefs or values. And I think it kind of moves this somewhat back around to more where you know, our podcast tends to tends to talk about which is, you know, kink and polyamory and those kinds of things. And when especially when you're in a, you know, in a world that doesn't really recognize or value, you know, who you are, or the types of things you believe or that kind of thing, you know, it can become especially important to have a community of people who are like minded, that you can go and talk to, you know, a lot of times when we're talking to poly people, perhaps who are newer, who really, you know, they're just getting a ton of negative feedback from people and, you know, everybody wants to tell them they're doing stuff wrong and, you know, they feel like super alone and like there's nobody who's been able to make this work and all those kinds of things. One of the first things that we do is tell them, you know, you need to find your kind, like you need to get out with other people so that you can be around people who support you, have kind of the same values and the same outlook on life as you do. And, you know, so you can see that there are other people doing this thing and that you're not weird and that things can work. Validation is a huge thing. Being able to be validated in what it is that you desire and what you want and what you need is huge. It is so hard to be able to achieve the kind of relationships or lifestyles that you want when you feel like you're the oddball out. Like validation is a huge thing. And not just validation, but also modeling. So when I was first starting to attempt to have poly relationships in in the 80s, there was very little out there. There was maybe one book, and this was before the internet, really. And I found, you know, one science fiction writer or one poet or someone who would even treat this subject, but there was very little in the way of guidance out there. And boy, I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I did stuff that I totally would not recommend anyone else do. And the reason for that is I had no models. So I was like, okay, I'm making up a new way of relating. I can do it any way I want to. But I didn't realize that some ways were a lot harder than others. It was sort of like, oh, I can jump out of this 10th floor window and fly just because I think I can. So I'm actually really, really interested to hear about your experience, you know, with intentional communities, with building one, with living one day to day. Because as I said, we've actually, uh, this is actually something that I'm, I'm very interested in doing. Um, you know, I find myself in kind of that position where our closest friends and like, you know, the closest people in our lives are very geographically spread out. You know, we only get to see them once every and, and things that's, you know, you were talking about events like, you know, we go to like maybe camp or something like that. and We get to see these people every day for a couple of weeks and it's awesome. But then you come home and you kind of don't get to see each other again for, you know, a month or two. So I guess I guess the first thing is just to define for listeners who don't know what what exactly is an intentional community when you're talking about intentional community. Okay, an intentional community is a group of people who decide intentionally that they want to live together as opposed to, you know, uh, people in an apartment building who just happen to live together because they all wanted an apartment there. Okay. And so can you just I guess kind of maybe the easiest way to, to do this is just to kind of go through, you know, timeline of how you got involved in building an intentional community and what that's been like? 
Well, I've been involved in a number of intentional communities over the years. The first one that I helped create is called Tacoma Village Co-housing, and it's a co-housing community in Washington, D.C. And co-housing is a, well, well, let me back up a little bit. When people hear about intentional community, one word that, that often comes up is the word commune. And so not all intentional communities are communes. It's a, it's a very specific type of community. So, but, but often people are thinking of a commune when they think of intentional community. So a commune is a kind of community where everyone shares their income. So there's like a giant pot that everyone puts their money into and expenses are paid for out of that collective pot. It's like communal economics. And there's some intentional communities out there that are like that. And there are a lot that aren't. So if you're not into that, there are many, many, many ways to live in community. We've actually talked to some people over the years who are involved in communes. It's a very interesting very interesting way that it's set up. It's not something that really appeals to me personally, and I think to a lot of people. So I think it's good for people to know there are other options besides that that model Absolutely. of doing things. And let me just say, actually, there's a really great resource coming up quick. The Intentional Communities Conference happens once a year at Twin Oaks Community in Central Virginia. It's a whole weekend. It's put on by the Fellowship for Intentional Community, www.ic.org. And people come from communities all over the country teaching sort of best practices and people who want to live in a community can be there and meet people. I've presented there for a number of years. I won't be there this time, but uh, it's in late August this year. Okay. The community that I helped start in Washington, D.C. is called Co-Housing, and that's a form of intentional community that got started in Scandinavia. And basically, it's a sort of individualized community in the sense that every person or family unit owns their own dwelling unit, but the dwelling units tend to be small, and they tend to be clustered in a way that promotes interaction. And then there's usually a common house that has a big dining area where people can cook community dinners and, and guest rooms for the whole, for everyone and, and other resources that would be better shared than purchased by individuals. Yeah, that's more the, the, the thing that we've actually talked about a little bit. Yeah, Rigel has been very interested in this and researching this for a while. So funny, I'll tell you a funny story before we go any further. So years ago, we actually were in Maryland. Do you know where Hunt Valley is? I don't know. Okay. Well, Hunt Valley is Hunt Valley is this area. It's like if you're if you're it's maybe like 20 30 minutes north of Baltimore. So a lot of our people that we're close with are, you know, kind of Marylandish up to like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Like that's kind of where our people tend to be clustered. So, and I don't remember how we ran across this, but years ago we actually ran across a developer who had purchased some, like this big chunk of, uh, I don't say big chunk, but maybe like 20, 20 acres out in Hunt Valley and had like divvied it up into 12 lots and had actually already had it like subdivided and never got around to building housing. And I tried to start a conversation with them about purchasing that and, and maybe developing it for an intentional community. It did not get very far. They were not, they were not interested. But this is something that I've been interested in actually for, for quite a while. Cassie, Cassie wants to, if we ever do this, she wants to put a dungeon in the common house. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I do. You have a theme co-housing, kinky co-housing group. I, I think that idea would have legs if you wanted to I, go for I it. Do, you know, it would just really be a question of, yeah, yeah, this, this, there's, there's a lot. That's why like I said, that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in 
in this whole topic because this is actually a personal interest of mine. It's not just a yeah, not just a show interest. So here's the thing that I really want you and, and your listeners to know. People who are creating intentional community can put a lot, a lot, a lot of energy into governance and structures and figuring out how to make decisions and this kind of stuff. And that's all very important. But culture eats governance for breakfast. So what I mean by that is if you don't know how to be in relationship with each other, if you, if you don't already have a culture of transparency, curiosity, clear communication, good boundaries, clearing up withholds, and really generally loving each other and doing your own work on yourselves, there are very, very few governance structures that are going to help you. On the other hand, if you do have that culture, and you practice it, then you can get by with, you know, a dozen different governance structures because you know how to, to solve the problems that happen in, in between people. Okay. Well, and I, so I actually want to talk more about stuff, but I think I kind of sidetracked you off your story. So you were talking about, uh, you were talking about kind of your experience with stuff. And I do think that I, I would really like to hear that. So we got, we got sidetracked, I think, at commune versus co-housing. Right. Okay. So I helped start this commune, uh, sorry, not commune, this co-housing community in DC. Um, it was very interesting because a lot of co-housing communities can take like 10 years to get built because what happens is a group of people come together who want to live in co-housing and then they end up being their own developer. They have to figure out how to buy the property. They have to do all this stuff that a developer would do. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a huge commitment. So by the, by the end of all that, yeah, some communities make it through. What happened with the community I was involved with is that there was a developer who actually wanted to create co-housing communities. So the developer bought the lot and took most of the risk on the properties. We, as individuals interested in this, only had to put up initially $500 each to show our interest. And then, you know, later we had to give more of, of the cost of our units and so on. So uh, it had some pros and cons. The, the pro is that it got built in just two years, which was amazing and quick. And the con of that is that it got built bigger than might have been optimal for a co-housing community. It, uh, the place has 42 units, which means about 60 adults living there, which is... Um, difficult for decision-making processes. It's a bit, it's bigger than the optimum. I'd say the optimum is more like 30, but that was the trade-off. The developer wanted to sell more units in the property. So, so that's how it happened. And uh, so I was involved for the first two years as it was getting built. And then I lived there for about two years. And because it needed to be so large, I personally was interested in living in a community of radical world changers, polyamorous people, people trying to change the culture. And because there were so many units and we needed to sell the units, that community more or less defaulted to nice liberal people who wanted to know their neighbors and have a good relationship with them, which was awesome and is still awesome, but wasn't quite what I was looking for. When I fell in love with my partner, Michael Rios, and he said, let's create a community in Arlington, I was really excited. So we created the community where I live now, which is called Chrysalis in Arlington, Virginia. It's two houses side by side, and it's smaller, and we have a lot less decision-making process, 
And the people living there are pretty much folks who are wanting to make a change in the world. Many of them are part of my own network of intimates and co-creators. And so I feel that's more in line with what I'm doing in the world and, and where I want to be. You really made a big size jump there going from like 40, you know, like 60 adults down. How many people are, are currently involved in the community where you live in Chrysalis? It's a little fuzzy because, you know, there's like eight people who live there pretty permanently. And then there's other people who kind of are there for a couple nights. We also have a retreat center in West Virginia where we put on a lot of events and we have a number of people living there. But folks go back and forth between the two places. Okay. And then folks come in from out of town and stay with us for a few days or a week and go out to West Virginia, come back. So we're, we're very dynamic and flexible. Yeah, I think that happens not just, you know, with, with the creative stuff you're involved in, that kind of thing. I think that just happens in poly in general. You kind of get transient. <laughs> Trans, <laughs> transient may not be the right word, but you get people who are kind of there, kind of not. It really depends on the week and, and what everybody's schedule looks like and that whole kind of thing. So... Yeah. Um, but so, but I mean, so how many people, I guess, live there on a regular basis would be a better question. About eight. And how do you like that compared to, you know, the, the, the larger community that you were involved in in DC? Well, I think what I like about it is that the people that I'm living with are people that I feel very intimately connected with. They're my co-creators. Uh, and we also share this culture of, really sitting down and clearing out whatever is, is getting in the way of us having a close relationship. So I really like that. And we have a lot of fun together. Uh, we have cuddle parties and we have folks coming over and hanging out and playing music and jamming. And, and it's just, it's a really sweet place to be. I mean, we talked a little bit about like the value of community and stuff like that, but what is it like specifically about living in an intentional community, especially one of like-minded people that you like? Like how, how is that different for you on a day-to-day -day basis than it would be if you were living by yourself or with a partner or something like that? More typical housing situation, I guess. Yeah. Well, I get up in the morning and when I go downstairs to make breakfast, there's usually a couple folks hanging out there. Sometimes there's nobody, but often there's someone and I get to hear about, you know, the project they're working on or the event they went to the other day where people were teaching really cool skills about relationships. And we get to geek out on how are we going to use that in the next thing that we create or what's some insight that that you just had. We, we have a range of people from more introverted to more extroverted and the extroverted folks are always bringing wonderful people over. So that's awesome. And, and then also I have my own space where I can just go upstairs and, and, you know, read or play guitar or work and not feel that I have to interact if I don't want to. So it, it really works well for me. What is it that you feel that you've learned? Like what kind of skills do you feel that you've learned from living in that kind of community that you wouldn't otherwise? What I've learned is that it's super important for everyone to really be responsible for their own emotional ups and downs. I mean, we can be there and be supportive of each other, but what really makes it work well is when I know that my reactivity or my emotional reactions aren't because someone else is being bad, but they, they may have been triggered by something someone else did. It's not about pointing the finger and blaming them. It's more about me going like, oh, okay, why did that make me so reactive? 
because without that, disputes and conflicts tend to escalate and, and kind of spread throughout the community. And then you get polarization and people taking sides. And that's really, that's really a bad scene. Okay. So I guess for, for alternative people who they're kinky or they're poly, because that's really, you know, the people that we have who are our listeners, you know, they're first starting to get involved and, you know, they maybe they feel alone or they, they want to connect with other like-minded people. How do you suggest that people go around finding a community? And I get this is more uh, not not an intentional community, but, you know, just a community in general, like people, like-minded people who they can get involved with and, and be a part of a community more day-to-day. Well, I think one of the best resources is meetup.com because there are so many people having so many different meetups. You know, that's a website where you can just type in what you're interested in and and it'll find you groups of people within a radius, 50 to 100 miles doing similar things. In the DC, Baltimore area, there's a meetup called Be More Poly, which is sort of a nexus for kinky and poly people to find each other. It's sort of an umbrella meetup group where lots of local groups post announcements. So that's a great resource. What about like, uh, I guess, less poly, more kinky-ish folks? Do you have any suggestions for them? Like is meetup still a good resource or? Well, there's some stuff. I mean, it's been a while since I've been actively involved in the kink community, so I'm not really so much of an expert on that topic. I, I would guess FetLife would be a place to go look, but I don't really know. Yeah, FetLife's a good place to kind of find events and things like that. Like if you're on FetLife, you can search places and you can search groups and find groups that are in your area that are hosting things like munches or happy hours where you can go out and meet other like-minded folks. It's also helpful to look for like education type events and things like that where you can learn things, but also a lot of those events are set up in a way where you can actually interact with people and talk. And usually it the the education element is paired with like a social kind of thing where you can like meet other people and stuff like that. So um, if you go on FetLife, you can find a lot of events and things like that. If say you got somebody in there, you know, they're looking for community and maybe they're kinky or they're poly, whatever the case, and they don't have anything particularly close to them. You know, this is something that we get a lot is people who are maybe they're out in the middle of nowhere, right? And like their nearest big town where they know where they can go. Maybe, you know, the the closest meetup group is like four or five hours away from them. Do you have any suggestions for people who are looking to maybe form a community? Again, not right now talking about like an intentional community, but just to form a, a community in their area. I think it would be really useful to go to a conference, a festival, a gathering of kinky people or of poly people or whatever the interest group is. For example, there's a number of polyamory conferences and and, and gatherings that happen around the country. Uh, we put on two a year at our West Virginia Retreat Center through Center for a New Culture. And at, at these bigger gatherings, you can often meet uh, a bunch of people. Um, some might be from your area, or they might not. But folks will often stay in touch for you know weeks, months, years after meeting at 
one of these gatherings, and this could be the seed of a community to come. And it's a it's even a bonus if the gathering you're going to is supportive of that, or in some way teaching community skills or helping people to get to, connected with the idea of helping people create local communities. It's funny. I actually think it's really interesting that you mentioned that. So, like, I know you said you haven't been involved in the the King community in a while, but like, you know, the the whole DMV. For people who aren't around here, the whole D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, you know, a couple of years ago really underwent like this huge explosion of groups and munches, especially and that kind of thing. And one of the things that we actually saw a lot of was very, very new people who didn't have really any experience with either running a community or really with with the subject matter, be it kink or poly or whatever the case, uh, wind up starting groups just to have something closer to them without really doing what you're saying and going out and going to some other groups and talking to some other people and things like that. And some of those groups took some really, really interesting turns because you had kind of a this sub community of, of people who a lot of them were newer being run by somebody else who was very new, who really didn't have any experience in, in either the leadership or the uh, leadership, maybe not the right word, but the community building or actually the the kink domains yeah in and of itself it it led to some really interesting kind of subgroups popping up for a while Mm. well i i think another really important thing is to try and find a mentor or someone or a supporter or you know uh, something like that and there are people in the poly scene and i would imagine also in the in the kink scene and in the intentional community scene who are really excited about supporting and mentoring and, and helping new groups uh, get started. So, you know, if that's what you're looking for, ask, see if someone can direct you to a place where that, where that's happening, you know, see if you can ask on, in the meetup group or ask, you know, if you're on Facebook do a Facebook search and then start asking in the Facebook groups, you know, is there anyone who'd be interested in mentoring? There's sort of this informal group of people who are active in the polyamory movement called the Polyamory Leadership Network, and they are working on creating helpful materials for people wanting to start a poly group in their local area. So that is something that that could be drawn on as well. So what are some of the like most important like attitudes and skills for making the relationships that you need to have to create these communities go well? That is such a great question, and I'm glad you asked. I I would say the most important thing is being able to sort of understand your own needs and be really clear on them, but also be able to hear and understand somebody else's needs. So this is what is sometimes called holding space for another person. And it means basically, okay, I'm not abandoning myself. I still know that my needs are important, but I'm just going to set them aside for a minute and see if I can really understand this other person's world, see if I can get where they're coming from. Um, And if I can do that and if I can hear them and listen to them and reflect back where they're coming from, then that other person is going to feel they're going to feel a sense of relief and closure, and they may then in turn be willing to listen to you. So that that ability to hold space for another person, to listen, to reflect, to be curious, to kind of want to know what's going on in, in with 
not just one other person, but the whole network of people you're involved in, that I'd, I'd say is a really key and crucial skill. Like it's not just like all about me. I'm there for myself. I have strong boundaries, but I want to know what's going on for others so that we can, you know, collectively meet everyone's needs. Yeah, those are very important skills just for relationships. I just wanted to add that is that just for even your own romantic relationships, being able to like hold that space while still having your boundaries and and that sort of thing is super important just for relationships in general. So I could see where that would be even more so when you have all these connected relationships with others. Absolutely. It's like, it's like um, exponentially more important the more people you have who are relating together. So, you know, in a poly network or in an intentional community, you know, if it's just between one person and another person, maybe there's triggering, maybe there's upset, but it doesn't go much further. Whereas if you have a whole bunch of people interrelating, then if I get upset because, you know, so-and-so didn't do their dishes and then I meet someone else and I snap at them and then they get upset because I'm upset. I mean, it can just spread through the whole community like wildfire. So that's why you get in both poly relationships and intentional communities, you get these high highs where everybody is giving each other good energy and then you get these really low lows where everybody is kind of triggered at each other. So being able to be grounded in yourself and yet hold space and listen to other people is just so key because it means that you're a dampener rather than an amplifier of reactivity in your network. So aside for having that space, what are some effective ways to sort of work through conflict in a community? There's many ways to kind of tackle the conflict. I mean, conflict's inevitable. Everybody has, uh, will have different needs. They'll have different desires. And so the question is, what do you do with it? And some conflicts can just be worked out by two people sitting down together and really listening to each other, you know, where, where one person just kind of s- says what's real for them and the other person reflects it back and then says, was, did, did I hear you right? And then the first person corrects if need be. Then the second person says, is there more? And then when they get to the end, then turn it around. And, and now the first person gets to listen while the second person shares. So that's a, a simple reflective listening process. Within a larger group, it's really important that people don't do what's called triangulating. Triangulating is when maybe I have a problem with Joe, but I'm talking to Kathy about that and I never talked to Joe about it. So I'm sort of recruiting Kathy to be my ally without ever clearing up the difficulty with Joe. And that just leads to you know, more difficulties and more partisanship within the community. So going directly to the person that you have an issue with and working it out with them first is really important. And if you, maybe you might need to talk to a third person to get some perspective or to get some coaching or whatever, but that should always be seen as a first step towards direct communication. So that's on the sort of still on the the one-on-one level. On the larger level where something is like involving lots of people in the community, then having processes where everybody in the community can be heard is super important. You can do that with a simple talking stick or you can do it with something more elaborate. I teach a process called Forum. It's not Landmark Forum. It's from an intentional community in Germany called Zeg, where everybody sits in a circle and everybody deliberately brings themselves into a space of witnessing 
and appreciation of other people's worlds. And people get up one at a time and share what is true for them. And there's facilitators that help people even go deeper. So it's not just, you know, I'm really pissed at Joe because blah, blah, blah. It's more like, okay, well, what does that mean to you? And how do you feel when that happens? And what does that bring up for you? And then, then you're realizing, oh, this person's reactions are about, you know, this childhood abuse that they had or this uh, frustration that they have that doesn't even have anything to do with the other person. And then it's just so much easier to understand and work out something that works for everybody. And that's one of those things that has to work better in a, in a situation of like eight people than, you know, than like a community of, of like 60 adults. Yeah. But that, so that actually leads really well into it back to the whole intentional community thing. Cause I did, it wasn't necessarily what we were planning on spending a lot of time when we started talking, but I do want to spend some time here because, you know, I think that there are a lot of people, kinky people, poly people who, who find this topic interesting. I mean, even just out of the number of people that I've had kind of a conversation with uh, expressing my interest, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of reciprocation. There's a lot of other people who are interested in that kind of stuff. And I think it's something that whenever you're, like I said before, you know, the, the kinky, the poly thing and poly especially is still not really accepted generally in the world. And to be in a space where you can be around your type of people, I think is a is a draw to a lot of people. So, you know, I'd be very interested in hearing from you, you know, if you have somebody, you have people who listen to this podcast who maybe this is something that attracts them, this idea of an intentional community, uh, either joining one or starting one, which I guess are two different topics, but they, they either maybe want to join a community or start a community. I guess let's just start real quick with join because that's probably a much shorter topic. Um, what advice would you have for somebody who's listening to this? They're like, hmm, like that intentional community thing sounds interesting. I might be interested in, in finding one of these and joining one of these. Okay. Well, first, I'd just like to go back to the thing you said about eight people rather than 60. So uh, different processes have different size sweet spots. And the one, the forum process I was talking about, the sweet spot is from probably 15 to 50 or 60 people. So it, it can scale up really beautifully. Oh, wow. What's most important is that everybody in the group have an intention so towards growth and learning and not an attachment or, or know that, that they might they honor the beliefs that they currently hold, but they have an idea that they might actually expand into beliefs or ideas or opinions that are that are better or more helpful to themselves in the whole. So, it, okay. so that intention towards learning and expansion is really important. Okay, so where would a person go to try and create or join a community? Well, first of all, uh, www.ic.org. That's the Fellowship for Intentional Community. There are a lot of resources there. They They've been putting out a magazine called Communities Magazine for many, many years now. There are lots of articles there. They host the Communities Directory. So that's a, a map-based directory of intentional communities in the U.S. It's huge. So that's an awesome place to go. And like I said, they put on the Communities Conference. There's actually two, an East Coast one at Twin Oaks Community in Central Virginia and a West Coast one in California. And I'm not sure the exact date of that, but www.communitiesconference.org, I believe is that website. There's some awesome books out there on creating intentional communities. I personally recommend the books by Diana Leaf Christian, and I believe they're called Creating a Life Together. And her website is Diana Leaf, L-E-A-F-E, Christian dot 
org. And I'll just remind everybody that we'll link to all these resources in the show notes that we're talking about at atouchoflavor.com forward slash 038. That's sort of the first line of that I would advise people to do if they're interested. So it sounds like you're saying they can go to that website, uh, you know, with the list of communities, maybe find some stuff that's around them, see what picks their interest. Does, does it break down like the, the types of community? And like, you know, I know most of them have like some kind of focus on on different things like, you know, poly would be a focus, although I don't know if there's any of those really out there that are a substantial size. But, um, you know, I know a lot of them have some kind of focus and things like that and different types. Yeah. And that's all on there. Yeah, that's all on there. There's different um, search terms you can search on. So, yeah. Okay. And then I guess they probably go visit would be the next step. Yes, absolutely. And I would say don't plan to join quickly. Most most communities have a sort of a trial membership or a trial period because uh, depending on the level of commitment it takes to join that community, it's almost like buying a house with someone. You really want to know them. <laughs> okay. And then, so I guess for anybody interested in starting an intentional community, you know, besides reading books, what would be like the first couple steps in that besides maybe reading some books and things along those lines? I would say visiting communities is also a really good step to kind of see how people are already doing it, seeing what works, what doesn't work. Again, much like creating poly relationships, creating community is a, an area in which people think that they, they create a grand vision, but they don't necessarily have modeling or common sense about what is workable for actual human beings. So visiting communities is super useful in getting some practical skills. Could you expand on that a little bit? Like, what does that actually look like? You're saying, you know, like people have a grand vision, but don't really. Yeah. Could you could you just play that out a bit? For example, there's a famous poly intentional community called Carista, which uh, I think was in the 70s and 80s in San Francisco. The way they they interrelated there is they had pods of people who were in relationship with each other and they had a sleeping order. So they actually had my understanding anyways, they actually had, they would drop a calendar of who slept with whom when. And that was their idea of what would make this community go well. Now, most poly people that I know don't work well with the sleeping order. They want to to have some freedom to follow their impulses, to understand what works best for them at this given moment. Just because they're scheduled to be with person A at this time doesn't mean they actually want to be with person A at that time. So to me, that's an example of of a vision that was created in someone's mind that uh, more or less, that doesn't necessarily work out as well as, as, you know, the ideas that might solve the scarcity problem, but it creates unforeseen problems that to my mind are worse than the problem it was trying to solve. It's that whole idealism versus reality kind of thing exactly. that we run into a lot, I think, in most factors of alternative lifestyles. Exactly. It's just because we don't have modeling and we don't have uh, people saying, yeah, I, I tried it. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. So, so learning from people who've actually tried things out is a really, really good idea. Once you have that idea, it's great to you know, put out an ad somewhere, maybe on Facebook, maybe a meetup, whatever, and start gathering people and see if you actually get along with the people who are showing up. Or maybe you have people that you already, you maybe already have a core and you want to come together and see if you actually want to live together. It's a good idea to do things in really slow stages. You know, see if you like each other well enough to live together. See, you rent before you buy. And 
I would say invest in some skills training. So get people to come in to teach you about clear communication. Get people to come in to teach you skills about handling conflict or bringing up what's underneath the surface, the elephant in the living room that nobody's talking about. Get some training on how to deal with power. You know, what's, how are you going to make decisions together and how is it going to feel good to people who don't agree? Some groups want to work with a, a sort of pure consensus model that can be useful for certain situations, but in other situations, you get the whole group kind of tied up in knots about something that they don't really care so much about. So it's not necessarily the best mode to use in all situations. Try things out, get some training, visit other people trying to do the same thing or similar things. In general, if you have a small group of people trying to do a really hard thing without any advice from the outside and without getting any training, really weird, bad things can happen. Yeah, well, I assume this is somewhat like, uh, you know, like starting a business in a field that you haven't been in before where you need <laughs> you need to bring in people who actually, you know, if you're going into starting an intentional community with a bunch of people who have never done that and you haven't done that, you know, I mean, I assume that it, it's still potentially workable, but you probably definitely need to bring some people in there who have some idea what the hell they're doing and get them involved in the process. Exactly. Where where would people go for that kind of training that you were talking about? <laughs> you could come to me or Center for a New Culture. That's what some of us do there. I mean, we really love teaching um, community and relationship skills. There's some folks doing it that you can find through the Fellowship for Intentional Community. There's people who train on who will train a group on group decision-making process. But I would say, you know, what's really special about my work and what the people I work with do with, with what we do is that we help people create the culture. So like I said early in the podcast, you can spend a lot of time being really legalistic and or idealistic and or cynical, I don't know, and setting up your decision-making structure very carefully. But if no one can talk to each other in your group without yelling at each other, or if you don't know how to bring out the elephant in the living room that isn't that you didn't think of in your complex, you know, rules flowchart, then you're going to have a lot of trouble. Okay. And can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about what kind of stuff they can learn from the Center for New Culture? We start teaching people about how to be curious as opposed to being judgmental. So, you know, you come downstairs and the kitchen is a mess. You're in, instead of going right into, my housemates are horrible people. They hate me. I hate them. You go into, huh, I wonder, I wonder what happened. I wonder if there was an emergency last night. I wonder if, uh, you know, so-and-so got exhausted or, you know, so curiosity instead of judgment we start teaching people how to be transparent, how to lay their cards on the table instead of kind of hiding information or trying to manipulate. We teach about boundaries, saying yes to what you want and no to what you don't want, which I have to tell you that is mostly discussed in the context of sexual and romantic relationships, but in community, it's hugely important as well. Like you don't want to guilt trip your neighbor or your community mate into doing something they don't want to do because man, you will pay for that in the end. <laughs> You want enthusiastic consent in community relationships as well. Okay. So that's some of the skills. And, and like I said earlier, reflective listening, clearing withholds, uh, saying the things that haven't been said, mediation, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. And at the end of the – actually, I think we're about to do the speed round. But at the end of that, we'll uh, get the information on where people can reach out if they're interested in learning that kind of stuff from you Great. guys. All right. So are you ready for the speed round? Okay. Tell me again how this works. 
So we're going to ask you some questions. The idea is to answer them as fast as possible. We try to say under a minute, but it never works out we that way. We try and say 10 questions in under a minute. Okay. All right, great. <laughs> so there is no wrong answer. So the first question is, what is something you're not very good at? Uh, I'm not very good at saying no to commitments I've taken on that I don't really want to be doing anymore. The best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Uh, trust your heart. What are three things you couldn't live without? Books, the internet, and chocolate. What turned you on? Geeking out with people about group processes. Tell me something that's true that almost no one agrees with you on. Wow, that's a tough one. It's the one that catches everybody. We moved it. It used to be like the second question. It threw so many people. We moved it to later. Taking responsibility is not the same thing as being to blame. Nice. What's a book that you would recommend for our listeners? Undefended Love by Jet Saris and Marlena Lyons. What is your biggest fear? Being publicly humiliated. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? It could be a sexual thing or a non-sexual thing, but the most adventurous thing you've ever done. Quitting my tenured professorship to, to do new culture stuff. Awesome. So who's your movie or TV star famous person crush? Does not apply. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what's something you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Wow, I'm I'm working on writing some articles about consent and the interaction between consent and responsibility between social justice and personal responsibility, that whole that whole intersection. I'm very excited about that. And where can our listeners find you and the Center for New Culture online? You can find us at www.cfnc.us. Okay. And do you have any personal, like you have a personal website or social media handle or anything like that that you want to put out as well? Sure. My website is www.sarataub.com. S-A-R-A-H-T-A-U-B.com. All right, Sarah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We had a great time talking to you. I may be tapping your, your brain, picking your brain going forward about intentional community stuff if I can ever decide where we actually want to live and, and get people to agree with me. So. Awesome. <laughs> We, we've had some uh, uh, differences of location, <laughs> but when we figure that out, we'll definitely reach out. So thank you so much for being willing to come on the show. All right. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 